0: And we've just started a new series called Perspective, Live for the Day. It's based in the book of 1 Peter, which is a a letter written by a guy called Peter in the New Testament. Peter wrote it in about AD 62, AD 63. He wrote to a bunch of Christians living in what's now modern day Turkey. And he wrote to them because he wanted to help them live with perspective. That's the key reason why Peter wrote to these Christians to help them live with perspective. Something I think all of us want to live with. Because Peter knows, I think, what well, we know, that to live each day, day to day, with uh, meaning and purpose and clarity, to do that, you've got to know where you're headed. To live each day meaningfully, you've got to know where you're headed. You've got to live with perspective. I've just uh, lost my notes, forgive me. Um, and so really, as he, he, he goes into the, the next part of the passage, into verse 13 of chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to, to that part. And uh, really what he does is he opens up the idea of holiness. He wants to, in this fir- next passage, he wants to say, the way to live day to day, when you know where you're headed, is to live holy. Holy living is the urge that he is about to give us in this passage. At which point, I suppose, you might think, well, now Philip's going to speak about... Not swearing, not committing adultery, not lying, uh, not cheating your boss at work. I just want to say right up front before we get into the passage that holiness is not about fundamentally about behaviour. It is fundamentally about who you belong to. So as we get into what is quite a dense passage, let's be clear. Holiness is not fundamentally about behaviour. It is about who we belong to. So let me get into the passage 1 Peter, uh, tell you what, I'll read from the screen because it's the right translation. Therefore, I'm going to read quite slowly because it's quite a dense text. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's Peter quoting an Old Testament phrase there. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So straight away, when we get this word holy, we've got to acknowledge that we've got a problem. Because the word holy really has no currency in our modern world. It's just not really used. And if it is used, I guess it's used probably ironically or scornfully, if at all. It just doesn't get used at all in our modern world. And I guess that's partly because of the misconceptions that we can have with the word holiness. Again, up front I want to say that fundamentally holiness is not about behavior. What I want to unpack for you is that it's much more about belonging. And I want to do that over four little sub-points. Holiness isn't defined by behavior. Holiness is defined by belonging. Holiness is seen in behavior. And holiness is possible because I belong. It's not defined by behavior. It is defined by belonging. Seen in behavior, it's possible because I belong. So first of all, holiness isn't defined by behavior. Two little sub-points to that, I suppose. First of all, holiness isn't about what you feel you shouldn't do. It's not about what you feel you shouldn't do. So uh, when I left my teaching job to come and work for the church about uh, three years ago, a lot of the kids or the students that I was teaching were pretty baffled as to the uh, move that I was making. And I returned a, about six months later to watch a game of rugby, and I was catching up with a few of them and telling them what I was doing and so on, explaining what it meant to work in a church and be a pastor and that kind of thing. And one of them kind of quite stupid, she said, sir, when, when you left, we, we all thought you'd gone to become a monk. <laughs> Whether the haircut was a clue or not, I don't know, but that's... That's what, they, that's what they seem to think. And I think when you read this passage, you ca- it can feel a bit like an exhortation to go and become a monk. And I'm not having a, a crack at monks and nuns. There's been some amazing ones throughout history. But for the students I'm referring to, their perception of a monk, and I guess many people's perception of a monk perhaps, was of somebody who wanted to kind of escape day-to-day life, to avoid immoral living, maybe engage in moral living. And that can be the perception of... Christians, I suppose, more broadly that. Christians are people who don't sleep around, who don't lie, who don't get drunk, who don't lie to the boss, who don't fiddle their tax returns. And my observation has been that Christians can feel like that's fundamentally what what we're about, what we do. We're people who don't do these things, even though sometimes we would quite like to do these things. And if we do do some of these things and make mistakes, we can feel distinctly unholy. And so is Peter just saying holiness is about not doing naughty things? I think as I've already said he's saying much, much more than that. And I'd say again up front and centre if you think that holiness is just about not doing the wrong thing I think you've missed the point. Of course it's partly about right living but it's about so much more than not doing the wrong thing. Well fine you might say holiness is therefore about doing the right thing. The positive things that we can do. Okay it's not about things that we can't do it's about things that we, we can do. And Christians are people who should be respecting their parents and giving generously to the poor or, or praying for hours. If I, if I do do those things, am I, am I holy? There's a guy called um, Tim Keller, who is a fantastic church leader and teacher in, in America. and He's really, really helped me understand a bit more of this this week and has informed some of this talk. And he points out, as lots of commentators do, that the quote Peter uses that I mentioned when I was reading, Be Holy Because I Am Holy, is from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. It's part of the Jewish law, and if you've read that book before, man, it contains a lot of rules and a lot of regulations. It's part of the Jewish law. But Tim Keller points out that actually if you read Leviticus, and it's probably not the most well-read book in the Bible, if you do read it, it's much less about holy people and much more about holy things and there's loads and loads in there about utensils and pots and tables and food, lots and lots of holy things. So straight away, if you look at Read Like Leviticus, you can see that holiness cannot just be about people, because in that book you've got loads and loads of holy things. It can't just be about morality. How can you have a moral table? How can you have an immoral table? And what would that look like? So Peter's urge to holy living is not simply a command to morality or to live better. There must be something more to it than that. Secondly, holiness is defined by belonging. Hol- holiness is defined by belonging. The, word, the Hebrew word that we translate holy literally, translate as, literally translates as set apart or separate, or separate which is why God describes himself as holy, isn't it? Because he's utterly unique. He's different from every other being. So what therefore is a holy pot or a holy table? What does that mean? It means they were things set apart for God. They belonged to him. So in that culture in Leviticus, if you, if you had a table that you ate your dinner at and you wanted it to be holy, you would, you'd give it to the priest. He would put it into the tabernacle or the temple and it would be used specifically for offerings and sacrifices. It would stop belonging to you and it would completely belong to God. It would be exclusively used in God's service. So Peter actually is deliberately using this Leviticus quote to say holiness is about ultimately belonging. It's who you belong to. It's an intensely personal, intimate thing. It's not just a rule-keeping thing. You see, let's be honest. It's possible to be moral for all kinds of different reasons. I could be moral because it makes me feel good about myself. I could be moral because it's, kind of, it's for me fulfilling family and social expectations. I could be moral because uh, I do it out of a sense of duty or out of pragmatism. Honesty is the best policy. Just, it's the best way to live. If you're honest at work, you don't get caught, you get good reputation, it's just the best way to live. But all those reasons for being moral are essentially selfish. They're all about me. They're all to do with self. And so therefore it's possible to be, to, to do moral behavior and still not belong to God. In other words, it's possible to look holy and not be holy. To be holy means to belong to God. A sense of he's yours and you're his. You see, the essence of holiness is an intensely personal, relational thing. It's not a cold word to do with behavior. It's a relational, personal word. It means you're completely given over to God. That's why Paul, who writes to some other Christians in Corinth, says in 1 Corinthians, two Christians, you're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. He's saying grace has made you gods now. You belong to him. You belong to him. And so of course, part of holiness is there are behaviors that we don't do. Adultery, lying, whatever. There are behaviors that we do do. Being generous financially to the church and to the poor. But only as an outworking of the fact that you belong to God. You see the difference? As as a result of wanting to please him, wanting to honour him, wanting to delight him. One of my favourite stories that I think helps illustrate this is a a story from the Bible, in fact. One of my favourite stories in the Bible. It's only a few verses, you just see it in 1 Samuel 23. And the, the scene is this. It's, it's about King David, who you may know is the most famous king in Israel. He reigned in about 1,000 BC. And the scene is where he is leading his, his mighty warriors against the Philistine invading force. The Philistines are trying to destabilize his kingdom. They've got into Israel. They've occupied some part of his land. Things are going pretty badly. And actually, we meet David in this scene where he's just kind of sat by himself with his men around in, in camp, in the wilderness, really. He's pretty despondent, pretty down pretty disappointed, he's hot, tired, thirsty. And he just makes this kind of throwaway line. He just kind of says really to no one in particular, man, I wish I could have a drink of cold water from the well in Bethlehem. Just kind of says it as a throwaway line. And Bethlehem was his hometown and was occupied by the Philistines, hence maybe that was in his mind. Like a sort of, almost like a rhetorical sigh, an if only comment. Didn't mean it as anything more than that, I don't think. And unbeknownst to him, three of his mightiest men overhear him say this. And so they do a remarkable thing. They get hold of some water jug lying around in the camp. They buckle on their armor and their, and their swords. Somehow they fight their way through the Philistines. They get into Bethlehem. I guess two of them must have been fighting Philistines. While one of them puts the jug into the well, gets some water. Somehow the three of them then fight their way back out of Bethlehem, still holding a jug of water, get back into David's camp and present him this jug of cold water from the well in Bethlehem. And David's just amazed. He can't believe it. He actually pours the water out on the ground, which seems incredibly ungrateful, but what he means is, I am not worthy of this kind of devotion. This is off the, sc- off the chart devotion, off the scale devotion. You see, because these his mighty men, they just loved him. They absolutely loved him. They they they, they belonged to him. They wanted to honor him. They they would do anything to please him and delight him, risk their lives even. Not because of a command, because of a rhetorical sigh. That was enough for them to want to go and please he who they belonged to. You see, if you're that devoted to someone, if you really love them, you'll just do anything, I think, to delight that person, to honor them. Whether it's a command or Just a rhetorical sigh. You'll do anything to please them. When that's the dynamic in the relationship, you don't ask, what can I get away with? What would be the minimum thing I could do for us to kind of stay okay? You don't ask that, I don't think, when you belong to someone like that. I mentioned monks and, and nuns earlier. Obviously the most famous nun, Mother Teresa, I think she kind of understood this in quite a remarkable way. She just said very simply, intense love does not measure... It just gives. That, I think, is holiness in some ways. Of course, you obey the things that you do know. Call them commands. But it's much more than that. You look for all that you can to to give, to please, to honor, to delight God. Why? Because holiness is about who we belong to. David's mighty men felt such a sense of belonging to David. Such a sense of love for him. That even just a, a throwaway line from him was enough for them to risk their lives for him because they wanted to please him, honor him. But, or and, holiness is also seen in behavior. It's not defined by behavior, it's defined by belonging. But it is seen in behavior. David's mighty men, they didn't just engage their heart and feel passion and love and delight for their, for their leader, for their king. They then engaged their will and they did some stuff. Radical, sacrificial action. So holiness is seen in behavior. Peter does say that we are to be obedient children. We are to be holy in all our conduct. That's the language of action, isn't it? Not passivity. It's the language of children who, excuse me, (coughs) it's the language of children who gladly and reverently obey a loving father. Just this morning even, I, just was, I came in, I hope Robin doesn't mind me sharing this, but I came in this morning and Robin, is leading our worship, was just practising. And as he was practising and rehearsing, his little girl Olivia was just dancing in front of him. Lovely little moment to watch. He was just practising and she was having a great time dancing away. A child enjoying her loving father. And then later on, as, as the morning progressed, Robin was just said to Olivia, right, we're going to go this way now. And of course she and she obeyed. And just there was the dynamic there of a, of a child lovingly enjoying her, her father. And of course, when the command came, she obeyed. Not because she felt oppressed or because she felt hard done by. Because she enjoyed obeying and honouring in her own little way her loving father. That, I think, is tapping into holiness. So I think it's helpful at this point to tell another story, which is, I think, more of Peter's story. If you kind of reverse back into Peter's biography, we've met him as a man of probably kind of 50 or or 60 or so by now, writing this letter. If you go back 20 years ago, he's a different part of his life. He's just become a Christian. But as a Jewish man, he's really, really uh, still convinced that they need to keep obeying all of the Jewish laws to do with cleanliness and food and so on. And Peter then actually is, is pretty unsure that anybody could be a Christian because if they weren't Jewish because they wouldn't be able to obey these key ceremonial laws about cleanliness and food and so on that he'd grown up with. And God kind of has to like sort of knock him over the head and show him really clearly that things have changed. And, and God shows him a vision. And in this vision, there are loads and loads of animals that Peter would have deemed to be unclean. And God says very clearly, don't you say that anything's unclean that I've made. And God explains to him that things have changed now. He says, now that Jesus Christ has come, belief in him is what makes you clean. And Peter begins to get it. He sees that the rules are no longer binding. Jesus has fulfilled the rules and it's a new day. Which makes it all the more fascinating, fast forward 20 years back to the letter, AD 63, that he quotes Leviticus. Initially I'm like, Peter, what are you doing quoting Leviticus? That's all the old stuff about the pots and the pans and the cleanliness and the food and things. But I think it's because he's understood now, ultimately, what Leviticus was always originally meant to mean. Which is that holiness is about belonging to God. He understood now that Jesus has made that possible for anyone who believes. And so reading Leviticus through that lens... Peter can still go back to Leviticus knowing the rules have been fulfilled and knowing that now what Leviticus really speaks to, these pots and these pans and utensils and tables and furniture, what it really speaks to is that Jesus has fulfilled the rules and all of these details of life, what that speaks to is the nature of a Christian, someone whom Jesus has fulfilled the rules for, means that their whole life, because they belong to God, is for him. The pots and the tables and the plans and the the furniture, all the Leviticus details, what that really speaks to is the nature of a whole life given over to God, as one who belongs to God. Holiness should permeate all of our life. It's not just a, a Sunday thing. It includes the parts that no one else sees. That's why Peter says in verse 16, be holy in all your conducts. So, where are the opportunities for holy living this week? A life lived out in the reality of belonging to God. I guess it may not be to the magnitude of Mother Teresa type stuff, might be just seemingly more mundane. It might be in in the workplace. You see, if your whole life, because you belong to God, your whole life is given over to him, the holy living, then the workplace stuff really, really matters. Like I get in the workplace that of course you you work for your boss, you work for for money, of course you work for those things. But if you're fundamentally working for God, then that changes, I think, how you work in the workplace. Because if there's stuff that your boss isn't seeing, it still matters because God sees it. If the stuff that your colleagues don't see or don't, don't acknowledge, it still matters because God sees it. Holy living, it looks different in the workplace when you know who you belong to and you know that your whole life belongs to him. What other opportunities are there for holy living? Just the small things of life. In the moment of scooping up your child in affection and love rather than a cross word. In the moment of stopping and talking and sharing a coffee with the homeless person you walk past on the way to work. Or what about in that moment when that habit that you'd love to get free of just comes back again, beckoning you back. There's an opportunity for holiness in that moment, not to see it as a moral struggle to be won through sheer bloody-mindedness, but as an opportunity to freshly give yourself to God, to remind yourself that you belong to him, that obedience to him is the obedience of a dearly loved child. So holiness is not defined by behavior. It is defined by belonging, but it's seen in behavior. But fourthly, just to emphasize and finish with this key point, holiness is made possible because I belong. That's the reason we can engage in holy living, because we belong to him who is holy. So that's why Peter really encourages us to think upon the gospel. Did you notice that right up front and center? He said, think. He said, in his quite dramatic language. He said, prepare your mind for action. And that literally translates as, gird up your mind for action. And he uses that metaphor because he's writing to a culture where men and women wore long flowing robes. And so he uses this very vivid metaphor to say, when you think, it's like you gather up your your robes so you can run. So in that culture, if you wanted to really run, you have to gather up your robes and get into action. So he's saying, gather up the robes of your mind so you can think clearly and move. He's saying, think upon the gospel. Think and think upon who you belong to. Verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, think upon the gospel. Think out its implications. Think out the implications of that statement. Peter's saying you've been redeemed by something far more precious than silver or gold, by the blood of Christ. David's mighty men risked their life, such was their devotion to him. Jesus gave his life, such was his devotion to you and me. That's the kind of devotion that he has. Think upon the ocean of love that you now swim in as a result of Jesus' accomplishments, on the fact that you are now incontrovertibly his if you're in Christ. On the fact, therefore, that to obey God, which absolutely is part of holiness, is done as an obedient child towards a perfect, loving father. When you think upon those things, you do find yourself changing. When you think upon the implications of the gospel, you do find yourself changing. You want to then give yourself to him more and more as an as a outworking of the fact that you've been able to belong to him through Jesus. Think upon the gospel Mother Teresa, again, I think says a helpful thing when she says many people mistake our work for our vocation. Our vocation is the love of Jesus. What she's saying is I'm primarily about someone that loves Christ because I know that I am loved by Christ. She's dwelt on the gospel. She's realized I belong to God. The reason I belong to God is because of the love of Jesus. And then from there comes some extraordinary holy behavior. One or the other, there are many, many implications of the gospel. Let me land with the last, perhaps the last implication of the gospel. In many ways, the gospel is this, that God made this world to be a perfect place. And through our rebellion, we made it a broken place. And Christ came to purchase us at infinite cost to himself. And he is coming again to complete what he started. Redeeming and renewing this world with the perfection of heaven. Which is why Peter also says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked last week about the nature of this overall letter being Peter's urge to live for the day. As in, live each day, in this sense, holy. Ultimately, why? Because you're looking forward to the day. You've got a long-ranging perspective on the day, the day ahead when Christ returns. The day when Christ does exactly, he finishes what he started. All of the worst things about the world are undone and made new. And all of the best things about the world are perfected and enjoyed forever. When you think upon that day, when Jesus returns to utterly renew this earth, it helps me to live holy. Why? Because I know that in that day, I'll become the person that God has fundamentally intended me to be. So I want to start living like that now. On that day, all the best things about the world will be utterly perfect. And you and I will live with the Holy One in perfect, enjoyable holiness. So I want to start living like I'm going to be now. I want to start seeing the stuff of that new creation, the things that Jesus is going to perfect this earth with. I want to start seeing that in in this day, in this life. Because I want to be the person that I'm going to be. I want you to be the person that you're fundamentally going to be. And I want others to see the nature of what is available to them. The beauty and the perfection of the kingdom of heaven. So, I'm going to finish there. Robin, come and join us if you wouldn't mind. And we're going to sing together and respond. Let me help you to respond as we sing. It might be that you've had that view maybe of holy living as being, I need to do stuff and not do stuff. And we've said that holy living is about making good decisions. Of course it is, but fundamentally it comes from who you belong to. So it might be that as Robin leads us in singing, your your response is to reflect, if you're a Christian, on who you belong to and to leave it there and to dwell on the gospel, to think, as Peter says, gird up your mind and think upon the gospel and enjoy changing. It might be that as I was mentioning the opportunity this week for holy living, you were thinking about stuff that I really shouldn't do, or that I ought to do, and now opportunities are broadening in your mind the things that you get to do as a result of living holy I stand I'll pray and we'll sing and Becca will help us to respond Lord Jesus we, we thank you that you haven't called us to moral behaviour you haven't called us fundamentally to do lots of things right and to not do lots of things wrong you fundamentally came to this earth to bring in the perfection of heaven and call us to belong to you to be in relationship with you And we thank you that when we get that, when we fully understand that, of course our life changes and we act differently and we look different. But we pray fundamentally we be a people and a church who are first and foremost captivated by what it means to belong to the living God, by what it means to be able to swim in the ocean of the love of Jesus that's made that possible. And as we do that, we pray, God, change us more and more. Cause us to live lives that are holy, that reflect you, that honour you, that bring glory to you. Amen.